Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Paul Crouton. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you. Thank you for coming out on a horrible day to the Regent Street store in London's Regent Street. Um, we're here to have a conversation with one of the UK's finest modern authors. David Nichols is an author and scriptwriter for TV and film. He's best known, as I'm sure you all know, for his book, One Day, which became something of a phenomenon. You couldn't go on public transport for about a year without seeing somebody reading it. A word-of-mouth bestseller, it sold two million copies in the UK and a further three million worldwide. The film version was released in 2011. His latest book, Us, was released a few weeks ago and takes in nine countries and 25 years and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. Please welcome David Nichols. Hi. Thank you for coming out. Hi. Hi. Um, I think we should start by telling you telling us a little bit about the book. So talk us through it in a, yes. in a few words. Okay, Us. Um, Us is about a guy called Douglas Peterson who's woken in the middle of the night by his wife and told that she thinks the marriage has run its course, that uh, after 24 years she wants to start a new life by herself. And... Um, their son also is about to head off to, to college to start life as a, an art student. And Douglas is suddenly left at the age of 54 facing a potential life alone and is horrified by this idea, hates the idea of, of a future by himself. So he, um, he decides that uh, he's going to win them back and hit the key to this, uh, this uh, saving of his marriage is a, a three-week tour of Europe, a grand tour of the great cities and museums of Europe. And so he sets out with this determined uh, heir to win back the love of his wife. And because it's a comedy, of course, things don't go quite according to plan. So it's a kind of road movie, I suppose, about, um, about marriage, about long-term relationships, about parenthood, uh, about science and art and Europe and travel and um, yes, it's uh, it, it, it intercut with the present day Grand Tour. There's also 25 years of their relationship, the story of their relationship from beginning to end. So it's um, it's a comedy. Uh, it does. I, I realize when I s describe it, it sounds incredibly miserable, but uh, it is a comedy. It I sounds swear. very long. It's 5,000 pages. Is that right? Uh, not quite no. 5,000 pages. No, but uh, it's. Uh, it was really fun to write. I mean, it was. It took a little while to get the idea and get the character's voice, but once I had that, it was. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Well, I finished it this morning, and as I'm sure everyone would expect, it's very, very funny. But it did. There was the must bits of dust yeah. in my eye or something. Yes. There was a couple of little moments where I, you know, a little bit of weeping was going on. Uh, do you? W you called it a tragic comedy. Yeah. I mean, do you set out to? to do both or do you think well this one's this one will be fun and then it turns dark or is it all do you know what you're doing um, before you start i love that feeling of i love it when a book can do both or a film i love it when you're laughing one minute and, and emotional the next i think that's exciting and i uh, I, I i don't want to i don't set out to do it i hope in a kind of manipulative way but i like the idea that a book can have a a powerful uh response that you can actually laugh out loud and 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 perhaps cry um i, I never want to strain for it and I sometimes think uh, maybe I should just write a very pure comedy, something that's just fast, something that has no darker element to it. Or maybe I should try and write something that's entirely serious with no kind of 
goofing around, no farcical scenes, uh, no comedy. But I, I've never really been able to do both. It feels quite a natural combination to me. The two go together, particularly in a love story. I think love stories, uh, I, I'm, I, I dislike sentimentality. So I, I'm always inclined to kind of undercut anything which I think is too corny. Um, but I love the idea that you can have an emotional response. And a lot of the books I remember when I started reading, a lot of the books I love were those books that really, really got to me emotionally, whether it was Tess of the Dervils or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or John Irving's novels or Great Expectations, all of those books that I remember from the ages of 18 to 23, 24, most of them had a pretty powerful emotional effect. I think that's exciting, an exciting thing to get from a book. Well, life is a series of lights and darks and shades, isn't it? So, um, what, one of the things I found very interesting is... is the relationship between father and son here because it's because the the opening is as you say the the wife saying i no longer think that this is this is going to work between us i kind of was set up to think of it as a, a love story and a, a drama between husband and wife but it is that but it's also very powerfully about father and son and it made me want to phone my dad as soon as i finished and apologize yeah. for being <laughs> me for many years um that was always the intention i mean the book when i was writing it was called married love but I wrote, before I wrote this book, I wrote a kind of prototype. And the prototype was about a father and son traveling around Europe. And the father was a completely different character to Douglas in the book. And the son was a completely different character. And I was determined not to have anything that you could call a love story, anything romantic in the whole book. There was no female character in it. It was just really about father and son. And I spent a long time writing this version of it. And I wrote about 35,000 words. And it was quite a... A mean-spirited, angry, spiteful book. It was written in the third person, and it was sort of me looking at this, these two specimens who didn't get on, and all they did was bicker. And after 35,000 words, I hadn't even got them on the train to Paris. I mean, it was really hard work, this version of the book. And I realized that possibly it was a mistake not to include uh, something about relationships, something about uh, a long-term relationship, something of a love story. So I threw that away and started again and started writing a book about marriage. And for a long time, this book was called Married Love, and that was what it was about. It was about Douglas and Connie. But as it, as it drew on, I suppose, I, I, I wanted realized that I was also interested in the father and son. And also, when I sat down to write this book... Um, when I wrote one day, I was 39 years old and I'd just become a father and I, I, I thought it was a kind of conscious farewell to the time of my life that was about dating and starting off in a relationship and the, and, and the kind of the friendship. You know, one day was as much about friendship as it was a love story. And uh, when I sat down to write this book, uh, I was sort of 45 and a father of two and all of that other stuff seemed a long way away. It seemed crazy to try and write about dates and 20-somethings and all of that as a 46-year-old dad. So I thought it would be a good idea to, to broaden the canvas a little bit. So yes, it started as a book called Married Love, and then it became a book called Together, and then it became a book called Us, which seemed to take on board not just the husband and wife, but the father and son. And uh, it's true, the book there's a sort of central event, and the second half of the book is rather different from the first half. There's a sort of change of emphasis. Now, I'm fascinated when you said that you you started with a one book and then it went over here and you changed its title and then it kind of went over here somewhere else. How There's one novelist I know of who has to plot his entire book on different colored post-it notes on the wall of his study. Do you have a similar kind of device? Do you do that in your head? Do you Do you know where you want everything to go? Or, I mean, it sounds like sometimes 
it goes where it wants to go almost. Yeah, I would like like all writers, I'm fascinated by how other writers write, and I'm really taken with that idea that you have this big pin board, and you know I, you can tell when I'm starting a novel because I go to the stationers and I buy lots of multicolored cards and drawing pins, and I think right this is this time I'm going to plan it, this time I'm going to do it like they do it on television. I'm going to pin you know write all the, the the headings and the the character notes on on little four by six cards and pin them to the wall and and the cards always just get dusty in the drawer because I'm not that rigorous I'm not that planned uh, and in the end it is a little more freeform having said that I always know the beginning and the middle and the end and and it's rare that a book goes off in a completely unexpected direction um, with this book I knew that it would be about fathers and sons I suppose as well as long-term relationships I, I just didn't know the extent to which that would uh, take over the story in the second half so that was that was a discovery as I went along but I'm quite a planner before I was a novelist I was a, a TV screenwriter and with a TV script people demand that stuff you know they won't let you start writing the script until they've got the storyline and often the storyline is very very precise and when I wrote my f my third novel, one day, you know, there's a there's a sort of 15-page story document, which is what happens year by year and where the characters are and what they did and where they lived and all of that. And the finished novel is pretty close to that. It's it's a pretty accurate document, and I don't think I could have written it without that uh, document before I started. You you mentioned that um, you struggled some uh, to tell the story and that you did this 35,000 piece. Now I've, I'm interested by that because for for most of us 35,000 words words is a kind of a lifetime's work i mean how what did it feel like to to press delete or I mean, how does is that like throwing away a well you know if you write years? if you um if you write a thousand words a day which is you know only three pages and you do that for three months then you've got the better part of a medium-sized novel the, the problem is, of course, a lot of it won't be any good. And unless you've got a really good story and characters, then you don't have a novel. And those 35,000 words, I mean, I was doing other stuff alongside it. I was doing scripts and television. But those 35,000 words took pretty much 18 months. And uh, that in itself should have set alarm bells ringing, really. The fact that it was so slow, that it was so agony, that I was spending so much time polishing, 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 when instead of moving forward and producing the volume of words needed to write a novel. So um, it was a bad sign that it took so long. As to the f what I felt throwing it away, well, I showed it to a couple of people and they, they both said the same thing independently, which is that, you know, page by page it was fine, but that I might want to rethink it because the characters weren't very nice and the situation wasn't quite plausible and didn't quite make sense. And I could have finished that book, I think. I think I could have, you know, made it to the end, but it would have been no fun. I mean, it would have been excruciating, and I don't think it would have been any good. I think it would have been a slightly mean-spirited book, and definitely a disappointment. And I was so wary, uh, horrified, really, of that idea of, of coming up with a book after one day that disappointed people, that, that actually throwing it away was surprisingly easy. It's much easier to throw stuff away than it is to publish something that you don't like, and live with it for for two or three or four years, and for it always to be on the shelf. I mean, that's that to me is is really painful, much more painful than taking a deep breath and deleting something. And of course, I didn't delete it; it's still on my computer. <laughs> so I think uh, it's true that uh, for me, anyway, that no work is wasted, and sometimes the stuff that you don't use is a necessary stepping stone to the stuff that you really do want to use. You just have to get past that stage. 
So let's talk about um, uh, the bigger theme of ideas and, and where these kind of things come from. Now, I I read that something part of one uh, of us is based slightly on your kind of your own tours. We were talking about it about there, the book tours and and where you go and and I also heard that there's one very funny moment in the book involving a lot of bikes and a kind of domino effect happened to you. So are you constantly kind of writing things down going, well, this will be good or hearing snippets of conversation and thinking, I'll have that? Or does it all come from another place? Again, I'm a terrible, um, I'm terrib- I'm a terrible purchaser of notebooks and little pens that I never use. Or I use the first three pages because I think I'm going to have this, I'm always going to have this in my pocket. And I'm going to jot down little ideas and lines of dialogue and I never do. But it was true that when I was publicizing publicizing one day, it took quite a long time to come out around Europe. And so every uh, couple of months, I'd head off to Portugal or to to Milan or Madrid or Barcelona and do little book events. And and I love doing that. I, I hadn't really been to Europe much, particularly as a young man. I didn't go backpacking. I didn't go into railing. Uh, I didn't really travel in my 20s because I was trying to be an actor. And I thought if I go, that I'm going to miss that audition for Hamlet that, you know, that I need so badly. So I didn't go anywhere. And then in my 30s and 40s, I was suddenly going everywhere around Scandinavia and Italy and Germany and really, really loving it and loving cities that I never imagined visiting, like Munich, which is a great city, or Stockholm, which is a beautiful, beautiful city. And really loving these places so much that I wanted to write about them, but not in a, not in a kind of picturesque way, uh, not in a kind of travelogue way, in a slightly grittier way. So I think stumbling from trains to hotels and and being constantly on the move reminded me of backpacking and I thought it would be fun to write about someone backpacking in their middle age. You know, someone having that kind of crazy sort of uh, irresponsible uh, time on the road at a time when they really should be settling down and, and, and settling into a steady life. So that was the kind of kernel of the idea. So that it, ca- it came from a combination of things, I suppose, from traveling, from finding myself a parent, um, from wanting to write a love story that wasn't about first love, from wanting to write about family as opposed to dating. Uh, all of these different factors came together into uh, into the final book. So you mentioned one day, and you and it it's was the most extraordinary success for you. Did you did you get an inkling as you were writing that particular book that you were onto something good here? That the idea was was clever and tight and people would like it or did it all completely come as a complete shock to you? I thought it was a really good idea and I and I I was waiting for someone to say oh someone's done that and they never did and that was that was exciting because I could see I think it's the potential in the structure the idea that you'd have this random day uh, and uh, rather than the usual events a lot of what I write is romantic comedy and the premise of one day is well they won't they get together which is the classic romantic comedy premise and um, so uh, how do you make that interesting without sort of walking through the cliches without repeating the cliches, the first kiss, the first date, the marriage, the, 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 the maternity scene. How do you keep that fresh? And I like the idea of writing either side of those key events. And if you take a random day, an ordinary day, you can write, it's much more interesting to write about three weeks after the wedding or six months after the childbirth or, or two hours after the first kiss. That seemed to be more original. So I was aware that it had the potential to be a good idea and that structurally it would oblige the reader to keep going because you have 364 days you know nothing about so of course you're going to want to find out what happens in between the chapters so I I, I felt that 
And I felt that I was enjoying it. I mean, I really, really loved writing it. And so I thought it was, I thought it was a different kind of book from what I've written before. But of course, I had no expectation of it taking off the way it did. And I was very grateful for that and very and slightly shocked by it. But it was a, it was a brilliant experience. Um, it just made it very hard to, to write. It was a big distraction, of course. Did you, did you see people reading it? Because everywhere you looked, you would see that book with the, the cover. And it, you, everywhere. I went home, my mum's reading it. You go anywhere else, everyone's reading it. Did you have that experience as well? Or uh, did you hide for a year? Uh, I, I was a bit... I sort of steered away from it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I cycle everywhere. I don't go on tubes. But everyone was telling me it's everywhere on the tube. And that was thrilling. And occasionally I'd see someone reading. I was in New York once. I've never really approached a reader because it seems a bit creepy. But uh, I was in New York once and in Central Park and someone was reading it and it was a very distinctive cover so I could see it from some way off and, and I went up and said, thank you very much for buying it and I wrote it and do you want me to sign it? And they looked at me as if I was just some kind of freak and no, they didn't want me to sign it and go away because you're not really meant to walk up to people in Central Park, I don't think, and claim to write claim to have written the book they're reading. So um, I, uh, there was a definitely a point, and I don't mean to say this in a kind of sour way, but there was definitely a point where I had to kind of, you know, step away from it. And um, I'd get rid of all the copies from my office and not talk about it anymore and not do any readings from it. Because it's just impossible to, you know, if you're doing a book event and you go on stage and you talk about Emma and Dexter for two hours, it's impossible to get up the next day and come up with anyone new. And Emery in particular was a very kind of um, persistent voice in my head. It took a while to shake her off. So um, uh, I was aware of it happening. And I certainly didn't become reclusive. But I did. there was definitely a point where I thought, well, this is enough. I have to stop responding to emails and talking about it and, and reading from it. And I have to move on. And then the film came out. Yeah. So did there was a, 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 a pause between the two. Um, and you were you wrote the film script, didn't you? So you or adapted the book yeah. for film. How did that feel to rewrite yourself? I mean, for a different medium, but is, was that an easy thing to do? And and how was the film experience for you? Um, well, I'd written scripts before, and I'd written adaptations before, so I was aware of the kind of the process and the um, the difficulty of transform transforming a, a book from one medium to another in an entirely faithful way, because there really is no such thing as a, a faithful film. I mean, even if you even if you stood in front of a camera and read the book aloud for nine hours, you'd still be giving an interpretation. You'd still be giving a personal response to it. So a film is always going to be different from the book. But I was keen that it remained faithful. Uh, and I'd written scripts before I'd written novels. So I did want to be involved. And I was also very possessive of it. But it was um, a little bit of you always think, um, well, you know, also how hard can it be? Because I know the characters and I know the dialogue and I know, you know, I know everything off by heart. And it's really all I have to do is get one of those highlighter pens and pick the best lines and type them out again. And I've done it uh, twice now. And it's always the hardest, hardest, hardest job. I mean, it's, it's brutally hard and not hard, not just hard because of the, um, the, the technique. Uh, the technical uh, difficulties of, say, losing... An, when you write a script, you lose an inner voice. Uh, if you're writing a scene, for instance, where uh, Emma and Dexter are in a restaurant and Dexter's being obnoxious and he has a voice in his head saying, uh, why am I being like this? I'm being obnoxious. If you then transpose that scene to a script, 
you lose that voice in the head and all you have is someone being obnoxious and there's no way of conveying uh, say the character's shame or doubt or guilt um, except through performance a and you're not allowed to put in the stage directions show guilt you know you have to kind of just uh, just trust that that stuff is gonna it's gonna find its way onto the screen so you lose a lot of your tools and you lose a uh, you lose a lot of stuff that on the page is entirely natural I mean another example which I've said before but if you write in a novel uh, it began to rain it's uh, you know it's four words it's fine um, but uh, if you give that if you write that in a script and you give it to someone then someone has to go away and find a 30,000 pound rain machine and the costume department have to get 15 copies of the same costume so that they can do multiple takes and someone will say to you um, listen, the rain is a real pain. Uh, do we really need, does it need to rain? I mean, everything you write in a script, someone will say, do we need this? Do we need the rain? Do we need uh, the costume change? Do we, does it need to be a new day? Do we have to go to Rome? Could we go to France? And um, that's the nature of it. That's the nature of film. So it's very, uh, I'm very fond of the film, but it's a very, very, it's an unbelievably stressful, stressful thing to go through. And I would never, ever dream of doing it again because um, uh, you, the, the pain of losing stuff is just too great. There's a much, much longer cut of the film, you know, a kind of two-hour, 40-minute cut, which I really like. But no one wanted to watch that one. So, uh, so inevitably, you just take a deep breath and you, you, you wait for things to be cut. And it's, it's difficult. So you say you're never going to do it again. There's already talk that Us might be turned into a film and yeah. Russell Crowe's already been mentioned to be sniffing around some of the parts. So y you're categorically not going to be involved in that or will you um, wait and see? I don't think so. I mean, uh, there's a couple of things to say about that. One is the, 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 the whole kind of bidding notion that there's a bidding war. I mean, a couple of people are interested, but it's not, you know, it's not crazy. It hasn't gone crazy. But a couple of people have expressed an interest because the present day stuff, there's this kind of quite nice chase across Europe, which could be quite cinematic and fun and the 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 locations are great and there's this lovely trio trio of characters at the center of the the story so there has been some interest but um the thing you'd lose instantly is uh is you know the character's voice and it's very hard to adapt books written in the first person uh because you lose so much of the humor you lose so many of the observations you you're left with film and um, books are often about what people think and what they feel and scripts are about what people say and what they do and the script itself isn't a literary form a script is an instruction manual it's a kind of, uh, it's, it's a document for other people uh to interpret so it's um it's the idea of doing it is a little daunting, particularly at the moment. I'm not. I'm not even thinking about it. And the Russell Crowe thing. I mean, that's again. It's really just that he read the book, and he tweeted about it, and he tweeted about it very, very generously and favorably, and that's great. But I'm not um, having any meetings with anyone or talking about casting or anything at all. Really, I like it. This one more than anything I've written, I think, is difficult to adapt, and so I'm very, very hard for it to have a life as a uh, as a piece of prose before any kind of screen life there must also be a sense that you want to just let it go for a little bit and just kind of say i've done that now off you go no yeah. absolutely and i i i'm gonna have a little break now i kind of uh, there's a film coming out next year uh, of far from the madding crowd which i wrote the screenplay for which i really love but um i'd like to uh, the last 
seven or eight years have been quite full on and I think I think I'd like to shut up for a little while and go away and and uh, and catch up on sleep and have a slightly quieter time unless I have a good idea for a novel and in which case I'll I'll sit down and start straight away because um, they don't happen very often and when they do and when it's something you want to write then it's it's thrilling to to get it down on the page it doesn't feel like work at all well, it feels a bit like work, but uh, <laughs> yeah, as, work, a lot like work. <laughs> as work goes, it's a really lovely job. Do you find it easier to write male characters or female characters? Is there any kind of difference in how you to write them? Um, what I don't do is sort of think of writing a female character as like taking on a completely v different vision of the world, because it's kind of foolish to deny gender difference. But I, for me, the worst kind of comic, romantic comic writing is that kind of uh, you know, men are from Mars nonsense. I really hate that. I really, really hate it. I'm, I'm not interested in reading it or watching it. And I believe that in so many um, fundamental experiences in our life, uh, the response is, is broadly the same to, to grief or ambition or disappointment or unrequited love. I, the idea that you have to kind of transpose your imagination to this alien frame, I think is, to me, seems like nonsense. So I... I don't feel anxious about writing female characters. I've never written in a um, female first-person voice. I think that would be a challenge uh, to be inside that head all the time. And I think, you know, there are certain very intimate experiences, sex or childbirth, that if I was writing a first-person present tense account, I might ask some questions. <laughs> but, but, you know, there's an old, um, you know, that satirical newspaper, The Onion, there's an old sketch in there about a, a male novelist who's constantly asking his wife, what does it feel like as a woman? And uh, I think, I may be wrong, but broadly speaking, I think probably it doesn't feel that different. So I don't worry about it. I don't worry about it. And I draw, I suppose, on female friends a little and an observation but I I, I I it I there are things that I do feel nervous about taking on I'd feel nervous about writing a, a period novel for instance um, that always makes me a bit anxious writing in dialect that always makes me a bit anxious writing sex scenes that makes me more than a bit anxious makes me very anxious so there are things which are scarier to write than writing a different gender I think great thank you um, we're going to turn it over to you guys now. So if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, then please make yourself known. We've got three already in the front row. We're going to have a nice person with a microphone. It's still raining, so do ask away. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Nice to see you. Hello. It's really <laughs> finally. Um, what did you play music-wise when you were writing this one? Because I know you wrote, oh. you had a massive... Spotify playlist when you did one day. So what was being played? And are you going to do a Spotify playlist? It's for this, you know, yeah. it's very interesting that because I loved um, when I was writing one day and I wanted to remember, you know, what 1992 felt like or 1995 or 1997. You know, I did read a lot of newspapers and I, I went on YouTube and watched, you know, contemporary television programs. But for me, the, the way of recalling a feeling, the feeling of being 23 or 29 or 34 was through music. That was completely immediate for me. And... Um, so consequ consequently, music was a massive part of that writing process. Not while I was typing, but in between, you know, to conjure up a mood of what did it feel like in a nightclub in 1997 or what did it feel like in, uh, in Paris in, in, in 2003 uh, as a kind of sort of sense memory thing, if I can say that without sounding pretentious. Um, with this book, uh, it's about someone who is a bit 
um, nervous about culture and taste. You know, someone who feels slightly removed from it. Someone who, if, if they had to draw up a list of their... Someone who, if they had to make a compilation tape, in all honesty, it probably wouldn't be a very good compilation tape. I mean, that's the truth of it. So the fact that it's about someone who's a little bit culturally removed means that I didn't really have a soundtrack for this one. And I quite methodically went through the novel, because the, this novel starts in 1989, and one day starts in 1988, and I thought, I can't write about the Blair years, and you know, I can't go through all that over all over again. So this one, even though you follow the course of the marriage from 1989 forwards, there's scarcely a reference to music, to politics, to the outside world. It's all in this kind of hermetic world of the marriage. So there isn't really a soundtrack for this one. And as to what I listen to, I listen, I, I, maybe I'm getting old, but I listen to a lot of classical music, a lot of Bach and uh, a lot of Bach keyboard music, uh, and mainly silence. I don't know when that happens. Perhaps I'm getting old. There's definitely a time when you can no longer listen to pop music in the morning, for me anyway. And maybe that's the indicator of just me entering a different phase of my life. So it would be a lousy playlist, and I'm not even going to put it together. <laughs> Okay, thank you. <laughs> Who's next? That's gentleman in the middle. Can you pass it down there? Hello. Hi. Um, coming from a screenwriter's background, as you do, I'm just wondering if that helps you with your dialogue because I've I've <laughs> I've read a few books where the dialogue just hasn't been great, but you you seem to do it extremely successfully, and I was just wondering if coming from that background has helped you immensely. Or um, thank you. I, I I love dialogue in films. And, you know, that's one of the things I enjoy most. My, my favourite films are my favourite filmmakers like, you know, Woody Allen around Annie Hall era or Billy Wilder or Ansel Lubitsch or Preston Sturges. You know, I love that dialogue that just goes like this. And I love, having worked in television, uh, I love the kind of glee you see on an actor's face when you give them a page of dialogue that's fun, you know, that has a kind of pace to it and has a kind of bounce to it and doesn't overstate things. Uh, that isn't naturalistic necessarily, but has that kind of zing that you want from really good dialogue, or is passionate. And I love that. Uh, and um, I don't think I necessarily learnt it as a screenwriter, though you can absolutely tell if actors aren't enjoying themselves. And I think now, because I've done quite a lot of it, I can tell before I give them the script what they'll like and what they won't like. So I suppose it's a little, a little bit of that. A little bit I also of, of being an actor myself and spending a lot of time, even though when I was an actor, I barely opened my mouth, in all honesty. I mean, I barely spoke on stage, but I did get to listen to a lot of dialogue and see a lot of really amazing actors click into action, and you could see when they were enjoying themselves. And I, I like the idea of writing dialogue that would be fun to say. And when I'm writing, I very, very rarely... Uh, rewrite dialogue i think because i think a, a little bit of it comes from improvisation and the kind of often in improvisation it's the immediacy and it's the first draft that's the best draft and, and reworking it is a little dull so i i don't know if it comes it comes a bit from wanting to act it comes a bit from just watching endless films and television i mean i was raised in front of the tv and i used to read books in front of the tv and i try and see five or six films a week and i think it just goes in uh i think Often I do read dialogue in novels and think it's a little sticky or it's a little overstated or the voices aren't quite distinct enough. Um, but it's the thing I like the most. And I have to train myself not to write. Again, when you start as a screenwriter, what you want to do immediately is write dialogue. And that's the last thing you should do. You should, you should write the whole screenplay and work out what each scene is for and then put the, the dialogue in, in, a, in a 
slightly more pragmatic, functional way. And then the dialogue can become fun. But the dialogue always has to serve a purpose. It can't just be there because you know it's kind of bantery and fun. It needs to have a role in the scene. So I, I'm always quite conscious of what each chapter is for and how each chapter moves things on before I start writing. Um, because otherwise you write, you, you fall in love with a joke and then you have nowhere to put it. And so you stuff it in somewhere where it doesn't belong. Um, it's the bit I enjoy the most. But, you know, describing a landscape in a third-person past tense novel, I'd be anxious. Describing a landscape in a first-person novel, I'm less, I'm less anxious about because you have this great thing of character and, and it becomes a monologue, it becomes a point of view, it becomes a, a response through a character's eyes. And that, that way, that, that's why I think for me, without getting too technical, writing in the first person is much more like writing dialogue. It's, a, it's about an attitude and a set of responses. Um, and that's why it's quicker and, and more fun, for me anyway, to write in the first person and the third person. It's a very long answer. I'm not even sure I answered it. You did. But there you are. Okay. <laughs> which, Thank you very which much. Which book did you find easiest to write? Was is there one that was so much easier than the others? Well, Start of a Ten was written. Uh, I think often it's your first book. Start of a Ten was, f even though it's not autobiographical, it was full of every funny story and joke that I'd ever heard. You know, so it had sort of 31 years worth of gags in it, and then you have to write another one. And suddenly you've only got 18 months worth of gags to, to draw on because you've used up all your best stories and experiences and you've written about what you feel passionate about. So first novels are often the kind of fundamental expression of what you want to say. And also because I was new to it, I didn't know how long a novel, how, didn't know how long you were meant to take. A script, you know, you should be, if you can write 10 pages of dialogue a day, you can write a TV script in, uh, in you know, two weeks and it won't be any good but you can you know if you're strict you can get it down and then you can do the second draft and third draft and fourth draft and I thought maybe writing novels was equally fast and so I wrote the first draft in about four months uh, and it was a pretty good draft and then the um, the second book took uh, longer took about a year and then the third book took two years and now there's a five-year gap between the third and the fourth but actually the writing of this one was just one year uh, to a for a first draft and generally speaking you know that's an indicator of enjoyment and anything if, if, if a book had taken me if a book unless it, it was immense if a book had takes me much more than 18 months I think probably there's something wrong unless it's going to be a six or seven hundred page book um, there was a question here that's lady in the Hi. Well, I hope it's not five years until the next one, but it was very much worth the wait. I absolutely loved Thank the you. book. Thank you very much. That's um, good to hear. Uh, right before I started reading it, I read a review that said that it was a bit unrealistic that someone would insist on going on a family holiday after they had told They've their spouse. And yeah. I laughed to myself because that's exactly what happened to my family. Yes. No, I, uh, <laughs> I was the same age as Albie. <laughs> it was exactly the same thing, an European holiday. It was a bit eerie, really. Uh, <laughs> so I was wondering, how did you get to that point, to that idea of... Um, going on this holiday on as this a family to try to solve a marriage. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, did you have a good time on that family holiday? Was it fun? No, or not it was really. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well, I wanted to write. Uh, I mean, another way into it, I suppose, was that I I, I wanted to write about you know a, a long term marriage and fathers and sons. And if you do that in, you know, if you do that in one place, if you do that in a kind of you know provincial English town, it can feel a bit. I don't know. It can feel a bit constrained. And I liked it having this epic quality. 
And um, also, you know, I, I'm myself. I'm not like Douglas, but I'm quite... I'm not the best person to go on holiday with, I suspect. I mean, I worry a lot, and I plan a lot, and I want things to be right, and I want us to go to the nicest restaurant, and I don't want anyone to have a lie-in, because why would you lie in if you're in Venice? I mean, why would you rest? Why would you relax? Why wouldn't you walk across the city? And uh, so, you know, there have definitely been times with this book where, you know, I found myself in, you know, a, a cemetery in Copenhagen with two small children in the rain, uh, looking at Kierkegaard's grave for reasons we couldn't really understand and thinking, why am I doing this? You know, the holiday travel is stressful and um, therefore it's funny. I mean, the things that are difficult, things that are painful, things that are, are fraught are often a great source of comedy. So um, it just seemed like a funny idea. A family that's about to explode, uh, desperately trying to have a good time and not quite succeeding. It seemed like to, it seems as if it had comic potential. So it probably is a little bit unrealistic, but it also was seemed to have an op there seemed to be an opportunity, not just for jokes and painful episodes, some of which indeed are true, uh, but, um, but for comedy and sadness. I think it worked. Um, any more for any more? Go on then. Hi, I Hi. haven't read the book yet, okay. but I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, my question actually isn't about that book. Um, it's about what you're reading and enjoying at the moment. Okay. Oh, I'm reading. Um, I'm reading Marilyn Robinson's book, new book, Lila, which is uh, which is terrific and is unlike anything. I mean, often I read things that I know I could never write, and I don't know if you know Marilyn Robinson, but she's a beautiful writer and she wrote one of my favourite books called Housekeeping, which is a masterpiece, I think, a genuine masterpiece. And and Lila is a very austere, almost Old Testament account of poor rural lives in 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 Missouri, uh, which isn't something I'm going to write myself. So often I kind of protect myself by not reading things that I might be compared to. But what are the last few things I've read? Um, I, uh, I read uh, a lot of Laurie Moore short stories. I really love Laurie Moore because, again, like a lot of American writers, she writes about domestic lives, uh, relationships, and because... Um, she has that particular gift that writers like Alice Munro have, or, or even going further back, writers like Updike have, writing about ordinary lives, but giving them a kind of grandeur and splendor and drama. Um, when I was reading this book, I read a lot of John Cheever, uh, who is one of my favorite writers. I don't know how many of you have read Cheever, but he wrote a series of really masterful short stories uh, about American suburban life. And they're you know, like in this book, they're about often about men on the edge of complete breakdown, men who are who are full of great passion, but who are living lives of of tedium and repetition. And um, and what else? Uh, you know, it's isn't it crazy that I forget? You instantly forget what you're reading while you're reading it. Uh, I'm reading um, a biography of John Updike because I've been reading a lot of Updike, and I'm reading uh, the new book by James Elroy uh, because again, you know, I like writing things that are entirely different, things that I could never dream of, of mimicking, things that are a complete, uh, a complete departure for me. So it's really diverse. I do read a lot of American fiction because I, I think, like I said, they give a kind of grandeur to small lives. Um, and I love that, that kind of writing. So yeah, it's, it's quite diverse. And 
when I was on the book along list, I started to read all of the book along list, and as soon as I wasn't on it anymore, I stopped <laughs> in a kind of sulk. But uh, uh, I read um, a few of those books as well, and they were terrific. Ali Smith, I, I, I just read as well, and that was, again, completely... I couldn't go anywhere near that kind of style, experimental style, but I really admire it. I think we've got time for one more, if we have. Gentlemen there, yep. Hello, hi, hello. how are you? Hi, do I <laughs> look familiar? <laughs> yes, you do, nice <laughs> to see you. <laughs> hello. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I'm very impressed with what you've achieved over the last few years, and uh, just want to congratulate you. Thank you. Um, deep down, it's kind of a career that I probably would have liked to follow, but didn't have the courage to, to or the energy to do it part-time, and, you know, obviously, mm, family to support and that sort of thing. I'd imagine that first book... You know, you must have been doing it part time. Where you were, how was, what was it like back back um, then? That first venture into this this scene. I mean, the big the big scary bit for me, I suppose, was was that I was you know I was pursuing acting and doing okay and getting getting a bit of work and then. Um, and then often being offered quite long contracts in very small parts, which which is a kind of security. But there's definitely a point where you think, well, I can't be, I can't play, you know, soldiers and servants for the rest of my life. And and there was one point where I had a choice of a, a, a really nice long contract at the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing soldiers and servants and walk-on parts and understudying, or taking on a job as a, a part-time job as a script reader for the BBC, and 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 decided. You know, I had to choose between these two posts and, and was very wary of giving up acting because I, I had so many friends who are actors and I'd had so much fun as an actor. But thought, uh, you know, I was coming up to my 30th birthday. I thought I can't do this any longer. I'm no good at it. And so I gave that up and took on um, work as a script reader full time, which was lovely. I mean, it wasn't well paid, but it just meant that I had access to this world of, of writers as opposed to the world of actors. And... Um, that was scary, but um, you know I've been very, very lucky. I've been very lucky in that I've had lots of very good friends who've helped me and and encouraged me and and um, you know f often pretty much forced me to write rather than act, probably because they'd see me in plays. But I was always encouraged to do it, and uh, even though I, I'm the only other thing I'd say is I did come to it really, really late, and I didn't make a living until my your mid early to mid thirties, which for my parents was quite alarming but um uh it was you know i love it now and i know it's quite precarious but i've uh, for me it's a great privilege to make a living from it and it's um even though it's scary sometimes scary quite often especially doing films um i'm very lucky it's very nice to see you as well to see you yeah <laughs> well, i can imagine it's you, you know, this is the glamour part of everything but there must have been quite a lot of stress pressure you know yeah. the delivery of everything it's, it's terrifying it's not as easy as it's not as glamorous as people but it's a kind of it's a kind of privileged terror do you know what i mean i mean it is it, to have a publishing a book is really scary because it's even if it's not autobiographical it's an expression of yourself and and you can really get a kicking and that can be awful but um but at the same time to be able to do it as for a living is is an absolute privilege and you, I kind of have to remind myself at three or four in the morning if I'm worrying about what the reviews are going to be like what the sales are going to be like that um, that it's what I always wanted to do so um, so I'm I, I have to train myself not to moan too much well we're glad that you do so thank you very much indeed for coming please give a big round of applause for David Nichols thank you very much for coming thank you